I'm Steve, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Um, if, if anybody would have told me ten years ago that I would be getting up in front of a group of people and speaking about spirituality, I would not have been able to believe it. It's uh, uh, truly an amazing thing that, that uh, number one, that I'm even standing up here, uh, and, and that, that, I, that I can speak about spirituality. Um, it's as, as this story goes on, you'll see that, that uh, I have a long way to go, but, but I have made some steps uh, in Al-Anon. And um, when Chris called me, I, I wasn't sure who to blame for this, and now I, I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> I was only going to be mad at Chris, and now I've, I've got someone else, so I can kind of spread that around. Um, I was... I was thinking about this, and I and I thought of a uh, there's there's a story of a um, captain of a ship during the War of 1812, preparing to go into battle, and uh, he wore a red shirt because if he was wounded, he didn't want his his men to know. And so, with that in mind, I spent the last couple of days searching all over my house for a pair of brown pants, and. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so hopefully we'll we'll be okay here. This is this is my my first time um, telling my story in in in, uh, in front of a, of a of a large group. And some somewhere last night, someone snuck into my room and put a bass drum inside my chest. And and if it's not a bass drum. If my heart should leap out of my mouth when this is going, would someone catch it for me and bring it back? Because something is, is really working here in me. Um, I came to Al-Anon, I think, you know, I, 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 my family of origin, um, my mother's family are Irish Catholics, um, my granddad, and he had, I think, six brothers, um, we're all alcoholics. Um, on my father's side, I don't know much about my granddad because he left when my father was young, left my grandmother with five children. But I do know that, that, that all of my father's brothers and sisters, except one of the five, four of them were alcoholics. My mother had a sister who died of malnutrition, is what the, the death certificate says, but she, she drank herself to death. She just quit eating. And um, so I, you know, I, all this went on, but I never really thought about it. You know, it's, there were lots of people in, in my family that liked to have a good time, and, and that was just the way things went. I grew up... Um, in a very rigid black and white household, what Dad said went. You know, his his word was law, and uh, and and that's the way it went. My mother made sure that that the kids were quiet when Dad was home on Sunday to take his nap. Those kinds of things. Everything we did was to make sure that that Dad had his space and his time. I went to uh, Catholic schools, which were pretty much the same way. They were very black and white, um, very rigid. Um, 
the church is the same way. You know, you go from from the Catholic school to the, to the Catholic church every day. We we went to mass, and and I grew up with that that rigidity, that black and white. Either you do it this way, or you're going to hell. And uh, you know, that was that was kind of a scary thing for me. So I, I grew up with, with a tremendous amount of fears about a lot, a lot of things. I, I have a brother who's about three and a half years older than I am. Uh, I have a sister. I was second. I had a sister that uh, was four years younger than me, uh, named Kate. Uh, a sister, Mary, who was four years younger than Kate. And so we were all kind of almost four years apart, and then Judy came along. She was an accident. She was only a, a couple years younger than, than Mary. And, and uh, so I, I grew up with, with, with this tremendous amount of fear. I was always afraid of my brother. He would do things to me like in the middle of the night, he would go, Stephen, I am not your brother. I came down in a spaceship. I'm an alien. I took the form of your brother, and I'm coming across the room to get you. And I would, I would be terrified. I am still not real comfortable with the dark because David's out there somewhere ready to get me. Um, I have a, a tremendous fear. I had a tremendous fear of nuns and priests because everything I ever heard was you have to do it just like this or you're going to hell. And I never could quite get it right to do it the way they wanted. I can remember I was probably in second grade. A nun told us that um, if you went up and took communion and and bit the host, if, if your teeth nicked it, that you would start bleeding and it would come out your mouth and everybody would know as you were coming back that... You bit into the host, and I, you know, it wasn't a very comfortable thing for me to go to communion because I was terrified that this was going to happen to me. Um, so, you know, I, I I grew up with with the fact that that I was not comfortable with confession. I never was. I, you know, it was just one of those things. But in a Catholic school, we went to mass every day, and if you didn't go to, to communion. You know, the nuns wanted to know why. So I would, you know, go to confession. And, oh, bless me, Father. I said bad words three times. Uh, I was disrespectful of my mom twice and just make stuff up, and he would absolve me. And, but I knew that I wasn't doing it right, and yet I, I had to go to communion so the nuns would leave me alone. Um, on Sundays, if I didn't go to communion, I couldn't leave the yard. I, you know, so my dad, this was my dad's rule. Did you go to communion? No. Okay, you're confined to the yard. Well, I got to be a pretty good liar about this. Sure, I did, Dad. I, I went to communion. And uh, it was kind of a catch-22. I couldn't, I couldn't not go to communion, but I couldn't say confession. So, you know, I grew up with this, with this terrible fear of, of, the, of my religion and God. You know, God was up there, and he was in charge of it all. And I also grew up with this tremendous fear of my dad. My dad was a, was a functional al- alcoholic. He always went to work. He always made it to work. Um, he always brought the paychecks home. He didn't go to bars. He just brought the beer home and, and drank at home. Um, for years, the, the joke around our house on, on like a, a Sunday afternoon after, after Dad had had a, a full day of, he he didn't believe in small cans of Coors. 
that, you know, they used the 12-ounce cans. He called samples. Um, he, in the old days, they had the 16-ounce cans of Coors, and that's what, what Dad would, would uh, drink all day Sunday. And we would say, boy, Dad's had enough to drown a hog. I, that was just, that's just what we said, and no one thought anything about it. That was just the way things were supposed to be. As I said, we, we, you know, we pretty much walked on eggshells. Um, I really have trouble with, with things like Christmas. My dad was a Woolworths manager, and uh, so starting around Thanksgiving, he, he would work from 6 o'clock in the morning and get home about 10 o'clock at night because that was the season when, uh, when Woolworths made big bucks. And then after Chris, and he would always be very cranky. He was not a happy camper during that time, but, and, and, and rightly so, because, you know, he put in a lot of hours. Um, right after Christmas, they would do what was called inventory, and, and they had to do that by hand. And if you've ever been in a Woolworth store in the old days, they have more junk that you have to count by hand. You know, there, there were no computers, none of those handheld devices. And... Um, so he was cranky for another two weeks while inventory went on because whether or not he got a bonus depended on how much had been shoplifted and lost. Um, uh, they call that shrinkage. And so, you know, he was real cranky then. So Christmas, and my wife and I have really struggled with Christmas. Christmas to me is something that's still kind of scary. You know, I, I really have to work on it. We didn't have a whole lot of communication in our house. Um, it, it pretty much went like Dad said, do it, and we did it, and and that ended the conversations. That's all. That's all there was to it. Um, I didn't. I didn't have a lot of of rapport with my siblings. Um, my brother scared me to death. Um, you know, I t- I talked about how we um, we always walked on eggshells. Well, when my parents would leave and leave my brother and I in charge. Uh, we did really nice things to my little sisters. Like, uh, I can remember one time my brother poured ketchup all over my shirt and pulled me down the hallway and, and, and was going to the, to my sisters. I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. And they're just, you know, the poor girls were just free. And I was, you know, doing a great act. And I, I kind of went along with that because if he was picking on them, he was leaving me alone. So I thought, that's great, you know. And it, you know, it, you know, really sick things. We would turn off the breakers and the house would be pitch dark and we'd make weird noises and scare them to death. So whenever my folks were gone, that that thing of having to walk on eggshells came out crosswise on my poor sisters. The one person that I had during those years that was always seemed to love me unconditionally was, was my grandfather, the, the Irish, the Irishman. Um, he had quit drinking. I don't believe he went to AA meetings. But, but he was able to, to, to impart to me that it didn't make any difference what I did. He loved me. Um, and and that's, that's looking back. At the time, I didn't understand it, but that was the unconditional love that uh, was so lacking in the rest of our family. Um, My dad started off so that on Sundays he kind of needed his own space. And it kind of progressed and progressed till he had his own room with his own television and his own books. And, and, and if he felt like communicating, then he would come out 
and visit with us. But he just withdrew into himself. Um, and, and, and he, he, he was, you know, I know he loved us. You know, that, at the time I didn't know that, but now I know he loved us. He was just, not having had a father at home of his own, he didn't know how to say those kinds of things. Um, I, I really believe that even if my father had not drank like he did, that I would have needed Al-Anon just because there were so many people in our family that had a problem, had a problem with alcohol, the disease of alcoholism. Well, you know, that, that went on, um, and, and then went away to college, um, met this lovely lady, and decided that we were going to get married. We got, I, I had worked for a year in, in Butte, Montana, uh, which was a great experience with, you know, if you want to be around alcoholics, uh, there's, there's more than one in Butte, and, and I, you know, I, I freely mixed and, and had a good time with them. Uh, but she finished at college. I, I was alone for that year, and uh, and that was nice. You know, I liked that being alone. Nobody bothered me. That was a great thing. But I always had this hole inside of me. Something was missing, and I think, you know, getting married was going to fix all that. You know, if I got married, everything was going to be fine. Um, we were gonna, you know, we'd have the perfect life. We'd have the perfect kids. And, um, and and everything would be fine. I had, in the meantime, you know, I went to Catholic grade schools. I went to a Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic college. And, and you know, it always, I thought when I'd go away to college, you know, when, when I would have to take a religion class, I was going to find something profound. It was, going to, it was going to be different than all the religion classes that I took um, in elementary and high school. But it wasn't. It was a. It was the Baltimore Catechism, with bigger words. You know, we just we just kind of increased the vocabulary, and I always struggled with the Baltimore Catechism. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade, and we had a we had a pastor of our parish, uh, who would come and give out the report cards. He'd go from classroom to classroom, and I was in eighth grade, and uh, he would sit at the at the at the desk in the front of the room and call our name, and we would go up and get a report card and. And, I, and he called my name, and, and I went up, and he looked at my report card, and he looked up at me and said, Are you an atheist? I don't think so. Well, I had an F in religion. You know, I mean, my folks, you know, my folks really scrimped and saved to send us to Catholic schools. There were five of us, and, and I got an F in religion in the Catholic school. You know, that's not really an easy thing to do, but I... You know, I managed. Well, anyway, I'm, you know, I'm in college. I, I just quit going to church. I quit going to mass at, in college. My freshman year in college, we had, we had what was called a, well, I can't even remember what we called it, but you had to go to mass and you had a card with your name on it. And you had to, it was six o'clock in the morning and you had to drop your name into the thing. And if you didn't go to mass, you were campused for that weekend. Well, it was just kind of like when I was a kid. Um, if I didn't go to communion, I was campused in the yard. Well, here I am, a freshman in college, and if I didn't go to mass, I was campused. And, you know, it just kind of seemed like this pattern was repeating over and over again. Well, my wife and I got married because, you know, and, and you know, it wasn't a conscious thought, you know, everything will be better. But, you know, it was. It, 
you get married, you, you have kids, and, and life is good. Um, I was raised with the concept that you don't show anger. Uh, I can't, if I had a dollar for every time my mother or my father said to me, swallow it when I was crying about something, you know, you just, you had to stop. You know, what are you doing crying? You know, you have no business crying. Um, that's what I imparted to my, to my children and, and my wife. You know, I can remember our, our first big argument, um, I don't remember what it was. It was something about we were moving from one place to another, and she wasn't doing it the way I thought it should be done. And and she tried to say something. <laughs> don't argue, for heaven's sakes. You know, I, in my in my family, the father was right, and don't argue with me. You know, it's it's just not done. That's not the way it, not the way things are to be. Um. I think that there's a there's a term called poisonous pedagogy, which is children are to be seen and not heard, and that's you know the perfect child sat there and you know crossed their legs and and didn't say anything, just looked good. You know everybody would say, "Boy, what great kid you had!" And that's kind of what I wanted my children to be: just that perfect children, don't say anything, don't upset the apple cart. Um, I think what I was trying to do was have my kids be what I wasn't. And, and then maybe my dad would say, you know, great job, way to go. Um, my brother was valedictorian of his class. He was the student body president. And I never really could, I didn't think I could match that, so I didn't even try. You know, I, you can't fail if you don't try. And and so I, you know, I wanted my kids to be the perfect students. I wanted my kids to be the perfect athletes, uh, the perfect children. And you know, that's a hard load for kids to to have to grow up with. It was very conditional. If they if they would, my love was very conditional. If if they would do as as I wanted, you know, all right, you kids are great. I love you. Pat them on the back, you know. But if they didn't. I, I, my kind of anger is the silent anger. Um, I just, you know, you don't exist for the next few days. Don't even try to, to try to talk to me. You know, you've screwed up. Now you're going to pay. You know, again, this is not a conscious thing. It's something that I was raised with. I'm sure my parents were raised with the same thing. Um, I began retreating into this, this shell. You know, I didn't have a room of my own, but I had a television set and a recliner. And if I turned the TV on, I was pretty sure nobody was going to bother me because if you bite somebody's head off lo- enough, they're going to stay away. So I, it didn't make any difference what was on the television set. Just as long as it was on, that was my space. Um, I was very rigid, becoming more rigid, very black and white. You got it? You know, there's a right way and the wrong way of doing things. And I knew the right way, and you better figure out what it is and not do the wrong way because you'll be sorry. I was becoming more and more angry at God, you know, this this concept of God. In 1971, the sister closest to me, Kate, was diagnosed with MS. And, uh, you know, pretty much knew that that was... You know, not a good thing to have. Multiple sclerosis is a is a is an ugly disease. 
um, you know, she began a steady progression from um, a cane to a walker to a wheelchair. And, you know, and she was, you know, she's a good kid. She was a great person. She was 20 years old when she was diagnosed with this. It, you know, it just was not right. You know, God, how can you have these kinds of things happen? The people that I that I work with, the kids that I work with, are are handicapped kids. Um, I work with a lot of people in wheelchairs, and you know, how can these kinds of things happen? You know, I mean, if if God is there, how can He do this? How can He make people suffer like this? I was really resentful. Powell's not a very big town. But in a short number of time, I was able to only be able to go into one or two stores in town because someone would do something to me, real or perceived. I'm not going back in there. The hell with them, you know. So, you know, in Wyoming, I'm not telling you anything. If you, if you kind of write off stores in Powell, the next closest is Cody. That's 25 miles away if you want to go buy duct tape, you know. You know, if you really need something bad, you have to go to Billings, and that's 100 miles. And I didn't want to go anywhere because I couldn't take my television set with me. But that's the kind of resentments that I built up um, and, and anger inside. You know, people were always doing things to me. You know, they are making me mad. I just couldn't figure out why they kept doing these things to me. Um, I had these great pitched battles in my mind. Well, you know... They did that well. Here's what I'm going to do. And I could go on for hours building up this scenario of witty things that I would say to them that would just cut them down and they would finally say, oh, please come back into our store. We need your business. And that never happened. They didn't even know I wasn't coming in, you know. And that's what really upset me when I finally figured it out. They, were, they didn't even know. They didn't know I was driving all the way. They could care less, you know. So craziness. Um, I worked with a young man who was the state poster boy for mo- um, muscular dystrophy uh, from kindergarten through fifth grade. And I would, I, I would work with him through the summer. It was a range of motion kinds of things. He, he was in a wheelchair when he came to kindergarten. The kid was an angel on earth. He was the neatest person I ever met. I mean, he was, he was teaching me things on a daily basis. And he just kept getting sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker. And I, I was so angry. I mean, I, he was dying. I knew he was dying, and he meant so much to me. And I was I was just so fearful that he was going to be gone. And he was kind of, at that time, my anchor. I mean, he just kept me from completely taking off and and doing who knows what. In the meantime, the the... The next sister to me, Mary, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, and and it was the strangest thing. It was it was a it was a type of cancer that middle-aged men who work in mines normally get. Well, she was, I don't know at the time. I think she was probably 28. Never worked in a mine, but she had this cancer. They took out a kidney. Um, you know, they thought they kind of had a handle on it. She then began uh, a decline, and she was taken to Houston. She was living in Texas at that time, taken to Houston, Houston for interferon treatments. They were really at that time hopeful that, that interferon would um, 
arrest cancer. At that same time, we were, as she was in Houston, we were taking a family trip uh, to Disneyland that we had we had uh, planned for quite a while. Um, and I can feel, I can remember feeling really guilty. You know, here's your sister in Houston with cancer, and here you are in Disneyland, just having a great time. You know, playing like your Davy Crockett. So I had that that um, that guilt with me. I also, uh, as, as we were we were taking. From Los Angeles, we were going to San Diego, and, and we were driving down the highway, and here was a uh, a sign on the highway saying, Mission of San Juan Capistrano. Well, just on a lark, we thought, yeah, that's neat. I've heard of that before. We go see if we can see some swallows, you know. And So we went in and toured the, the Mission of San Juan Capistrano, and on, the, on a little part of, of this um, uh, mission was a, was a little shrine to Saint Peregrine, I, you know, I'd been in Catholic schools forever, and I had never heard of Saint Peregrine. Had no idea who Saint Peregrine was. Well, he's the patron saint of cancer victims. Oh, I mean, this is a sign from God. This is a sign from my higher power. And and so I, you know, they had these holy cards that you could you could buy that were an intercession from Saint Peregrine to, to God to um, help someone cure someone who had cancer. Well, I couldn't talk to God, so this was a godsend to me. You know, I'd, that's a funny way of putting it, rather ironic. But I, I got this, this uh, card, uh, Prayer to St. Peregrine, and, um, and I put it up on my, my bathroom mirror, and uh, I, I read it every morning. You know, and, and I thought, you know, this is, this is my way of being able to help Mary, you know, I I'm going to help her. I'm going to help her be be healed, and I I really believe that. You know, every morning, God, please. What I was saying is, God, please cure Mary. And this was in 1985. Um, in in March of 85, Brian, this this little boy with muscular dystrophy, passed away. Oh, it just killed me. You know, God, how could you do this? I mean, the kid's an angel. He's, he's, he's just this great kid. How could you kill him? And and that's the way I looked at it. God killed him. And in November, my sister Mary, who had cancer, um, passed away. And I thought, God, this is the the dirtiest trick that anybody has ever played on me. How could you do that? How could you? Give me this hope, and then pull the rug out from under me. Um, during that time, my dad couldn't go to her funeral because his drinking had progressed to such a degree that he fell and couldn't get up. I mean, he had stopped eating. He had gone from the tall cans of Coors to drinking vodka, and, and he pretty much quit eating. He had no strength. He couldn't get up. So he was in a treatment center in Denver as I was in Houston, or in Dallas, where my sister lived. Well, I came back and uh, stayed in Denver with my mother over Thanksgiving. This this had all transpired at Thanksgiving time. My dad got to come home for that one day. They let him come home for Thanksgiving. My sister Katie was now living with my parents, and she was bedridden. She couldn't move. Um, and I, you know, I was just so angry at my dad. I thought, how could you be like this and not even be able to go to your your daughter's funeral? I just, wow, you know. 
I was mad at him. He had done something to me again. Um, it, in December of that year, we were going down to Denver to, to see my sister Kate because she just wasn't doing well. As we drove up, my, my youngest sister Judy came down the steps of my parents' house. And I knew something was wrong because they had been going to go to Illinois to visit my sister's husband's family. So something was wrong. Well, my sister Kate had passed away um, that the night before we got there. And I, again, I was so angry at God. You know, couldn't you have waited eight more hours till I could see her? I, I, I hated God. I was so angry. Um, in the meantime, I, you know, all this is going on. I'm so angry. I'm so full of hate. My, my daughters are growing up with this. <laughs> and they had these, these, these feelings of mine that they had to deal with constantly. I can remember the last trip to Denver that we took as a family. Um, my dad had retreated into his room and didn't come out for the four or five days we were there. And on the way home, my oldest daughter, Sarah, said, I might as well not even have gone. He didn't even know I was there. And, and I was so angry at my dad. You know, here he was, so judgmental, so black and white, so angry. Um, and, and I just, I couldn't believe that he could be that way. I was, at that time, so angry at my wife that I was telling her to go to a doctor because she was crazier in hell. I mean, she, that was something wrong with her. Go to the doctor, find out what's wrong. When you get fixed, I'm going to be okay. And luckily, this doctor questioned her, talked to her, and um, he, he said, is there any alcoholism in your husband's family? <laughs> is there anybody not an alcoholic in your husband's family? It would have been an easier question for her to answer. As she came and talked to me at, after visiting with that doctor, as I think back now, that was the first miracle that I ever, I, I, I can ever think of because I listened to what she had to say to me. I was sick. I had grown up in this alcoholic family and I was sick and I didn't just shut her off and go sit in my chair. I actually listened to what she had to say, that there is a family disease of alcoholism, and I've got it. Um, I started in, a, in an adult children's of alcoholics uh, program, and um, I, I did that because I didn't want to end up like my dad. Angry, black and white, rigid, resentful, and it wasn't until I, well, I wasn't in it very long that I realized I wasn't going to end up like my dad. I was my dad. And that was a, you know, that was a scary thing. I had become my dad. When we first started in, and I first started in Al-Anon, they kept talking about God. And that really put me off. But I, I kept coming back because they had what I wanted to have. There was this serenity and they were laughing and they're having a good time and, you know, I, I wanted to have some of that, but I wanted to figure out how I could do it without having to have God. You know, because I was just so angry at God. You know, I just, you know, it went, now it's not my wife's fault, it's not my dad's fault, it's got to be God's fault, you know, that all this stuff happens to me. 
at first, the first thing I was able to do was have my group be my higher power. They were saying all these things that I needed to hear, and so they were my higher power. Um, you know, now I know that my higher power was speaking to the group, speaking to me through the group, and and that was, you know, that was good. I then, you know, tried to take this a little bit further. That granddad who loved me unconditionally, I pictured him as God, as my higher power. Whenever I would think about God, I would picture my granddad. We, everybody in our family called him Boppy, and. You know, he'd be sitting up there, he's this, this really neat Irishman with a cigar. You know, well, it's hard to think of God with a cigar, but that's, you know, Bop always had a cigar. That's, that's what I pictured. Um, I'm now able to see that I, as I look back and I've had Alan on and I've realized that I have choices in my life. When I get up every day, I can have my, my day mean something or I can Blame it, blame things on everybody else. There's a miracle called listening. You know, I can now listen to what people have to say to me without shutting it off and thinking, you've got it wrong, I've got it right. I can listen to what people say. I have a miracle of my sisters. I can look back now and think about my sister Mary. I had that, that card that I said every day, and I included my sister Katie, who had uh, multiple sclerosis, in that prayer to be healed. You know, it was my way, God, do it my way, make them all better, make them up running around and having a good time. But as I look back, they both died the most peaceful, serene deaths, and they were with their their maker. They they were ready to go to God. And I, I think now that I helped do that by saying that prayer. God answered my prayers. He just didn't answer them the way I would have wanted him to, to, to answer them. I think it's, it helps me now to think that I was a positive part of how they were able to go meet their maker. The serenity prayer is a miracle to me. As I first started in Al-Anon, I, you know, we talk about committees and, and we laugh now, but I had all this stuff going on and on in my head, and I would say the serenity prayer over and over and over again, and I just would focus on those words, and pretty soon the committee adjourned and went wherever committees go and left me alone with moments of serenity. Al-Anon has been a miracle to me because in the past I would do something for a few weeks. You know, like um, I read the book Shogun. I don't know if any of you have read it. And it kept talking about karma and wah. Well, I, oh, karma, you know, I just, I, I, and, and, you know, no one's going to disturb it. And for a while, you know, I, my life was okay. I just retreat into myself. You know. well, I lasted a couple weeks, you know. Um, Al-Anon I've been with for nine years. That's the longest I've ever stayed with anything. That's a miracle to me. You know, it's as I said before, I, every morning when I get up, I pray to God, I thank Him for what He has done for me to give me such a good life. And, and the last thing I ask Him is, please walk with me, help me, to get to be a better friend with you. Because, you know, there was a lot of years of hatred. It's, it's not yet to the point. I know he's there. You know, I, when I talk to him, I feel calmness. I 
feel, but I have to be the one to initiate that. And so I pray to him, please, God, help this be something that I can be a little bit closer to you. Um, and, you know, all, you know, just coming to these meetings is, is, is amazing. Um, we were talking about, my wife reminded me that there's some small miracles. I've been here, I haven't read a paper in two days. Well, I always had to read the paper and drink a cup of coffee. That's a miracle to me. The NCAA tournament was on last night. I was here listening to Moose and enjoying every minute of Moose's talk last night. I could not have done that a few years ago. I would have had to watch the tournament. You know, I couldn't give that up. I think the the biggest miracle in my life are my children now, my two daughters. Um, I have a daughter that's almost 28 and a daughter that's 25. Um, in, In the... Uh, Courage to Change book on page eight, early early on when that book first came out, there's there's a statement in there that my only job is to love them. You know, I don't have to take care of the life. I don't have to be the little Dutch boy p- putting my finger in every hole in the dike trying to save the world. My job is just to love them because they have their own higher power. And that was so comforting to me. You know, I pretty simple, but I never figured it out. I was the higher power. How could they have their own? And then in, in the ODAT book, on page 165, is something that I have up on my wall at school. And it says, the beginning of love is to let those we love be perfectly themselves and not to twist them to fit our own image. Otherwise, we love only the reflection of ourselves we find in them. And that's by Thomas Merton. And that has allowed me to let my daughters lead their own lives. About a year ago, our youngest daughter, who's just like me and we butted heads, oh, God, that poor kid, you know, uh, told us we were up hiking in the mountains. That's something else that we never did before. We, you know, I, God is in those mountains. And she spent the day with us, and, and as we were going back to, to our tent, she said, you know, Mom and Dad, you're, our, you're my best friend. And that was some, this was a child who couldn't wait to get out of the house, who was never going to have kids, because she didn't want them raised like she was. And Al-Anon has given me my kids back. And all the friends that this morning told me when I got, got up here that it would be okay, and it is. I'm still standing I thank you for your time, and it's just great to be here on this great spring morning in Wyoming. So thank you. (laughs) 